and um, there we go. And today is uh, October seventh, nineteen ninety-three, and I'm speaking in his office in Anchorage with uh, Mr. Red Boucher, who uh, for a number of years was the mayor of uh, Fairbanks when the Native Land Claims Movement was just getting up off the ground, mm -hmm. and then from uh, 1971 to 1974 uh, was Lieutenant Governor of Alaska during the time that uh, the act was, was uh, in the final uh, stages of becoming law. And uh, since this tape is someday going to go up to the university and hopefully will be around for kids that uh, have never heard of the two of us, <laughs> uh, maybe the best way to get into all of this might be just a quick uh, bit of biography in terms of uh, sort of who you were and, and how you got to be uh, positioned uh, after the 1970 election to be involved in all of this. Well, first, first of all, I uh, came to Alaska in 1958, just before the Statehood Act um, passed in Congress. And I'm an East Coast person, uh, 20 years in the, in the United States Navy. We were uh, still talking about how you got to be Lieutenant Governor in, uh, in November of 70. You mentioned you just come up uh, to Alaska right after statehood, I think, is where we were. Yes, I, I had um, retired from the Navy. I was uh, Chief Petty Officer, uh, Chief Aerographers that made my specialties were in the field of um, uh, communication and meteorology. I tied when I was 36, went into the Navy when I was 16, and served uh, a good deal of the time in the Southwest Pacific. As you look around my place here, you'll see it's a kind of maritime. <laughs> But I served aboard the aircraft carrier Enterprise, which, not the new one, but the old one, which was the most decorated ship in, uh, in naval history. Like I think the thing I'm the proudest of is that my mother was a chief petty officer in World War One. Really? Like not only really? long before the women's movement started or before there were waves of women in the service, my mother was what they called a yeoman F, which meant yeoman female. And she served aboard the USS Constitution uh, in the Boston Navy Yard. In fact, if you look right up there by that silver plate, there is a piece of the hull of the original Constitution that was given to me by some of the workers in the Navy Yard. Uh, when I was on a national TV program called Name That Tune. <laughs> and the reason I mention that is because it was through the television program that I ultimately ended up in Alaska. Hmm. I appeared on there, but John Glenn was a major in the Marine Corps, <laughs> and he's now a United States yeah. Senator, and he and I got to know each other. Well, he was on the program just before I was. It's the old name that tune program where you ran up and right. rang right. the bell. Come on, you don't I can remember. I was a kid. You I, had to bend by a real kid. I, this know. was 56 or yeah, something. Yeah, I was, I was 9, 10 yeah. years old. Uh, yeah, sure. So, 
I be, I what I did was contribute and talk a lot about my childhood home. It was a period after my father died. He he died as a young man from effects of world mustard gas in World War One, and. Uh, so uh, I ended up in um, an orphanage for about a six-year period of time, and this orphanage was in Fall River, Massachusetts. So the orphanage and the Navy became the thing on Name That Tune. You know, they've always got to have some sort of focus or what have you. And in the process, I became quite popular in the state of Massachusetts. I had the kids from the orphanage down, so John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was then running for senator, um, invited me to lunch on one of my trips up there uh, with he and the Archbishop of the Fall River Diocese. And um, Kennedy asked me if I would go out and knock on doors with him. <laughs> Of which I did in Fall River. It was evidently a pretty close race for the United States Senate. He was running against a fellow named Saltonstall, mm -hmm. sure. who was an old Massachusetts family. But anyhow, he won, and then I visited him on a couple of occasions, and it was coming retirement time for me. Uh, and um, so he said, Why don't you pick a piece of real estate and get involved. And I said, what do you mean, Senator? He said, well, at one place in mind, Alaska is about to become a state. And I think you do great there. He says, I visited it a time or two, mostly on, uh, on a, on a uh, kind of hunting and fishing. But he said, it ought to be an exciting place. It's a place that you could relive uh, America again. I was I was very inspired by the man. Um, I I think Kennedy was the type that, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he could end a sentence and have everybody standing up cheering, and they'd say, "Well, what are you cheering about?" Well, I don't know, but it sure sounds good. <laughs> He's a great motivator. Um, he wasn't a a a political technician, if you will. So I said, "Well." You know, how do you do this? And um, he said, just get in an automobile and drive. <laughs> so I ended up doing that. And um, I never, when I came to Alaska, I did not understand um, the immenseness of the state. You know, I knew little or nothing about it. Uh, before coming up, I'd taken one trip up here and rented a car and drove from that back from Anchorage to Fairbank, but that was a very short trip. So I turned right on the, um, the Richardson Highway then and says, well, I'll go up to Fairbanks and visit there. What I was going to do was be a manufacturer's representative. I picked up a number of uh, clients, mostly in the sporting goods world, and I was going to sell sporting goods on a commission basis to uh, the military. So I ended up in Fairbanks and checked into the Traveler's Inn. And when they gave me my bill, I took a look at my checkbook and I was kind of like Wally Hickle. I mean, <laughs> I didn't have any money to go on down to Anchorage, which is where I planned to start out. 
So I got an apartment in the Northwood building. Um, and uh, just um, started selling my sporting goods. And uh, then uh, uh, drugs were just beginning to come along at that particular time. So I, I want to start a baseball program. And um, so I started what today is Alaska baseball. It was uh, 1959, and, and um, I always had a dream in the beginning that, um, and it's a philosophy that I followed. It's Kennedy once again. Let's send a man to the moon. He didn't sit down and get involved in the technicalities. So I wanted to build the best amateur baseball program any place in the world so we could attract the finest talent that would be an example to our young people who at that time hardly knew how to throw a baseball. The fact that baseball has grown by leaps and bounds in every place you look in Fairbanks or Anchorage or where there's an acre of ground, kids are playing ball. and. I think it's essential that we create opportunities for young people to participate. And we have, and one of, I think, the problems with us uh, is that we have become a nation of spectators. We sit and we watch television, and we are waiting for somebody to entertain us. And uh, so that started that. Then uh, how I got in politics is I share a lot with Jay Hammond, a dear friend of mine. He talks a lot about serendipity. Well, I wanted some grass seed for the ballpark. <laughs> and so I went to the Park Recreation and Cemetery Commission. And they said, um, in fact, they were more busy burying people, <laughs> digging graves, than they were creating recreation opportunities. And I told them so. And they said, well, if you don't like it, run for office. <laughs> so I did. I ran for the city council. I think I was just eligible by a few weeks. And I knocked on doors from one end of the city to the other. I mean, I think I knocked on every door. In fact, it was kind of the beginning of door knocking in Alaska. And I stood on street corners and held up signs and waved at people. And I ended up beating Ed Murdy's, uh, <laughs> a dear friend of mine, whose untimely death here a while back. Uh, and I uh, got on the city council, and I managed to get recreation a part of the city, Alaska land, that 90 acres that's set aside, because I think a community has to enjoy itself. And um, I think there's more to life than just economic development. So that kind of, uh, after that, I, I got out uh, after I served my term. And then I found out that there were some things that I still wanted to accomplish and that it's kind of difficult to accomplish them. You can't play the game unless you get the bat in your hand. So I ran for mayor in 1900 and... Uh, 66. 66, yeah. 
ran against a dear, wonderful woman, Sylvia Ringstead, an 80-some-odd-year-old pioneer. And uh, somebody says, well, how do you run against someone like that? I says, you praise them and, <laughs> you know, and just say, well, you're going to be just like them. And then just get out and knock on doors and you might win. And I was lucky. Um, I won. And um, my first year was rather exciting. I was supposed to be taking the baseball club to Wichita. And... Uh, now, was the mayor a full-time position in this? No, it wasn't. Uh, but I kind of, anything that I get into, I tend to make it full-time. I just get involved. I don't know how to do a little bit of something. Um, I'm a leave polisher. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I spend a lot of time on details. I mean, I've got to do stuff just so it's absolutely right. But anyhow. Uh, we're talking about the native land claims. Well, I was just I was just going to ask you yeah. in terms of that time in the uh, early '60s and up through. through I the, had been following. What was what was what was the the situation in Fairbanks? How were natives treated in Fairbanks? Was there any consciousness about native land? Well, claims? I no, no, I think it, 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 uh, Ralph Purdue and um, uh, the natives in in Fairbanks were a much more of a blend of the community than I felt that they were when I first moved to Anchorage. I mean, they were fellow Alaskans. And um, uh, a, a lot of your people that were up there, uh, Morris Th Maury Thompson, um, I mean, he served with Hickel and Hickel's cabinet. Um, uh, Johnny Sackett uh, out of the university. So these were some of your uh, hard drivers. and. Um, just about, you know, simultaneously you had, had everything going. In other words, one of the early things, you look back beyond the lated land claim, beyond almost anything, uh, to the Battle of Statehood. And, and uh, the Native Alaska community was constantly encouraged to go to Washington, see Big Brother, the Department of Interior handles your problems, etc., etc. They became pretty skilled at it. In fact, I'd say probably the native community collectively across the street are one of the most effective Washington lobbying groups that exist. I mean, if you want Anwar or some of the other, you had just best have the native community with you. Right. But of course, that's the situation now. They obviously didn't well, have, uh, did have those skills. In the I, I think that there was a feeling. I never heard anything anti-native. Uh, Maybe a few of the flippant remarks by some of the redheads regard uh, drinking problems on Two Street. But there were just as many drunk uh, uh, Caucasians as there were. So I, uh, early on, uh, I developed uh, friends within the native community. and. I felt that the struggle was not so much to give, quote, natives some land, but to get on with the total business of the Alaska Statehood Act. And if we could add 40 some odd million acres to the acreage that we were getting, that was land that was going to come under Alaskans. 
how the natives were to develop their land had to be uh, peculiar to their lifestyle. Hey, bear in mind that we in Alaska have the uh, the uh, ancestors of the people who discovered the new world. Right. Now, did, did you know a guy named Nick Ray up there at that time? Do you remember Nick at all? No. Um, he was a little guy who apparently yeah. started the Fairbanks Native Association with, with Ralph Perdue. Yeah, name? and uh, uh, oh, I knew lots of people. I had little sporting good stars, and, and my Native friends would come in. Uh, I dearly loved them. I think they're a fantastic, wonderful culture. And um, as I became lieutenant governor, you know, hey, when I wanted to get my head screwed on right and still today, I'd go out to one of the villages well, now, and how sit did and share. So this was, yeah, but I wasn't that politically aware of the things that were on uh, the national scene. Then it was some, amazingly enough, uh, when I became mayor um, and the Gold Panthers, the baseball program grew into a fantastic success. I mean, you can look right over there and there's an autographed baseball from my first Hall of Famer, Tom Seaver, who was inducted last year, and a letter from him, and uh, just Winfield. So I feel good. We do have the best program in the world, and other people acknowledge it all over the nation and internationally. Now you get down to to this. Part of my reasoning for running for lieutenant governor was the attitude that the administration at that time had on Native Land Claim Settlement. Sort of Keith Miller's not a nickel, not an acre. Oh, that type of thing really bothered me. I mean, these are Alaskans. I mean, uh, major contributors to the society, you know. Um, but I felt at that time when I heard some of this, it was some of the same redneck type of talk that came out of Alabama. You know, well, what are you going to do? How come them natives own this land and what have you? People, people are with a pickup truck mentality that still today, uh, Battle subsistence and the and the native um, the native way of life and their culture. I mean, I've made a number of speeches the last time I did on the floor of the house about subsistence, but uh, it is as valuable to us to see that this culture lives and continues to thrive. I mean, you can bring all the Walmarts and all the Kmarts you want to town, but they create $7 an hour jobs. The Native Land Claim Settlement Act has seen, sure there's been some failures, but look at see Alaska, and some of them that I think moved up into the Fortune 500, that's all. Uh, I don't know if they're up that high, but people, Siri and uh, yeah. oh, Alaska, yeah. Dorian. Right. It been an example of how you can um, get a job done. And the gifts and skill. Roy Hundorf 
could be CEO of any corporation in the United States. Uh, so I, this was the perception that I saw. I saw a new opportunity for more, more land for the state. I saw greater opportunities uh, for more leadership from the Native community. And I saw no negatives, none whatsoever. So it was one of the major reasons that I ran for Lieutenant Governor because I knew how strongly Governor Egan felt about it. Well, that was going to be my next question as to whether or not you talked to, to Bill during the campaign about this. Well, I, don't, I don't think, see, bear in mind, I, when I ran in uh, 1970, I was still pretty much at Chichaco. I mean, I had, uh, hadn't even been here for 15 years yet. And, uh, I was running against Chuck Cesara, who had been Speaker of the House and was very well liked in, in the Democratic Party circles and certainly, I'd have to say, a good friend of Governor Egan's. So here I'm this baseball character from Fairbanks. It's kind of a go, 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 loudmouth type of person. And uh, Bill Egan is, in every sense of the word, most of, he, he, he never uh, could, it could be stated, he was an enthusiastic and a person who loved Alaska, but we're two totally different type of people. Uh, but um, I did talk to him about it after I won the primary. I didn't figure that in any way, shape, or form that I should even approach the the governor during the primary, just get out and hustle and win. And I did very well in rural Alaska. Now, was Cesare his man? I mean, did he possibly uh, have uh, Hey, Bill Egan never said that. Hmm. Uh, I, would, I would say that he had to be, but he wasn't his man. I mean... Uh, he didn't go out campaign for him. No way, no way. In fact, I was kind of lucky in that I got Ernest Greening uh, to cut a spot for me when we were going over to Sitka and, and Cicero like the flip. In fact, <laughs> I still have that 30-second spot. But, okay, we need to speed it up here, right. but we were elected. The first cabinet meeting that Oh, we actually, had, let me, one last question yeah, before yeah. we get to the first cabinet meeting, and that is, do you have a feeling uh, I didn't crack the numbers because I thought I had my 1970 returns from the general election in my filing cabinet and they're missing, but uh, obviously Anchorage and Fairbanks had been going much more Republican in those years. And it was always the Bush that was really saving the Democratic Party. And I was wondering, do you have a feeling in terms of, the, obviously your attitude about Native claims was very similar to Egan's. Do, do you think that was a, a major factor in the general election? Uh, oh, it was certainly, uh, whether it was the major factor, was it a major factor? Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, you waited for the returns. I mean, uh, uh, definitely, um, um, they were going Republican, and as you've seen, they have, um, meaning they by uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage. And I've always done pretty well in Anchorage. The baseball and 
In fact, when I ran in Midtown here, it's a Republican district, and um, I carried it well against some pretty tough Republican opposition. Well, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. you could tell no, me the first, no, 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 the first, no, 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 uh, do it, do it. So <laughs> You know, well, sorry, to just whoever's just, listening to this, right? Well, just to, to sum that up, and so then, that, so then that this, in, in terms of this argument between Egan and Keith Miller about whether or not the state should be participating responsibly in a claim settlement, that that really was a, a factor in that, that election. Well, it it was, but Egan never hammered it. That his theme was let's get Alaska moving again. Was it was bogged down by all of the things that we couldn't do, instead of really reaching out for the things that we could do. And Egan didn't waste his time with that kind of nonsense. You know, let's move ahead. And certainly the settlement of the native land claims was of a high priority. Uh, so we were elected, and um, he brought people from the Native community. Evan Hobson uh, uh, served, and Roger Lang, a number of Byron Malott. So, and, and uh, they, they did great jobs. Um, well, I've interrupted you. You were mentioning something about the first cabinet meeting. The first cabinet meeting. I remember Charlie Edwardson at the end of the table, and when Charlie got wound up, you know, he'd have a nervous stutter. And Egan, Egan just says, hey, slow down, we're going to work on it. We're going to get this problem solved. It's of a top priority to me. But there are other problems. And so, you know, the non-native community, there are other problems, and we've got to move ahead together. You know, and uh, so let's drop some of this rhetoric, a tone or two, and uh, begin to uh, work to solve the problem. And uh, he was uh, on the phone with the key Democrats in both the House and the Senate, and you know he played um, quite a role in statehood. So he had Egan every place Egan went. Um, he he had just. Um, people had lots of respect for him. That was for one reason. When he told you something, you could put it in the bank forever. There was no such a thing with him as all bets are off. I'm not. An increasingly rare commodity. <laughs> yes. In, uh, yes. In political life. Well, in any political life, Egan thought before he moved. I think if you're ever, there's a famous um, television ad that was used when television ads were first coming out, and it was a light in the window with him working there late in the evening. I'm a late worker myself, and uh, I could hear him come in, the door shut. The first place he added was for the old UP uh, AP teletype to find out what was going on. Then he'd sit down, and he was on the phone. I'd watch those lights blinking, and he was in touch with Alaska. Hey, Mary, how's it going out there to some housewife in Kotzebue? 
<laughs> he had the best intelligent network of any politician I've ever seen. And he probably got on the phone for two or three hours every evening calling people all over Alaska to get the feeling of how they felt. He didn't need any pollster. So it was rare that the man moved in a direction that was not supported by Alaskans. This is a true public servant. Most people are, are political mechanics today. They couldn't walk into a room as Bill Egan did. And when we went out of the room, Bill Egan could tell me how many people would vote for us and how many would vote against us in the room. So he had this antenna, this instinct that was tuned in. The 30-second mentality did not exist in his life. By the 30-second mentality, I mean that stuff that most politicians have been crowded in today. How's your media? Saw your media, it looks pretty good, and the whole future of a nation or a state is decided on how you ride a horse up the side of a mountain instead of some of the debate. I mean, uh, Bill Egan was never a media candidate and probably would not have gotten elected if media had been in the forefront in his first election. Well, you can make the argument that that's why he lost to Jay in 74, actually, that Jay was a better media candidate. No, he didn't, and I'll tell you that. I counted the votes. The votes were the absentee that came in. It was those first 30 days out. In fact, we were ahead until the absentees were counted, and nobody could believe it. I was the one who counted each one of those votes. The reason we didn't win is because you could not get the man out from behind being governor. He just didn't get out of the stump? Well, he could have. We tried to get him into Fairbanks for one last time. Bill, come on. I got work to do here. I'm about the people's business. Well, now, speaking now, of the people's business, the first thing that he had to do when he came in, when you guys came in, was, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, but in... In January and February of 71, you got a resolution out of the legislature that publicly committed sort of the end to this Keith Miller business, that the legislature was mm -hmm. was on board. Were you involved in yeah. all of that? Was yeah. that, was that uh, teeth pulling, or was that an Egan operation? Or oh, no. Marty Farrell introduced the thing. Anything that occurred in Juneau when Bill Egan was governor was an Egan operation. There was only one governor, and the legislature just, uh, they were staunch and they were independent, but if the governor wanted it, and he always wanted something that didn't embarrass people, the governor got it. So there was no such a thing as about your operation or uh, this. There was one governor of this, this state, I'll guarantee you that, and he wanted it. It went through. It did. It took him about uh, three and a half weeks. Or yeah, you got it. Number, El number uno, first thing right. to go. Uh, I was sent down to find out how the people were going, uh, but only if the governor was too busy to talk to him. He was a hands-on guy. Now, did he bring him upstairs, just oh, out of curiosity, or did he, go down the, did he go down in the halls himself? Wherever. Hmm. Uh, um, 
he did not go down on the um, second floor very much. He felt very strongly about the separation of power. He didn't want to be perceived by the legislature as somebody trying to run them too. Uh, bear, in, bear in mind that uh, he'd had experiences at the other levels of government. Right. But uh, there was somebody down there, it was Wes Coiner or Alex Miller or myself, constantly, constantly. I mean, we just, we didn't lobby them. Uh, we just said, is there any more information that we can give you? Because there were some pretty strong-minded people uh, down there at, at that time. Right. But he had friends that loved him, like Bill Ray. Bill Ray could get anything through the Senate. And so he was carrying the ball for Egan. Uh, you had, uh, well, not Cesare, but, um, see, let me think of some of the people over on the House side. Kurtula, I believe, was over there at that time. Uh, people just loved to carry the governor's water. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he was just sort of leaving as I was getting involved in all of this. I never really had an opportunity to spend much time with him. He was uh, uh, just fantastic. Hmm. Well, Understated. You'd think he was around picking vegetables out of his roof. <laughs> the most unassuming person. Well now, uh, other than getting this resolution that publicly commits the legislature to participate. Well, the lines were burning in, uh, with Congress, and um, needless to say, um, uh, our Washington delegation uh, was working hard on the thing. And the key and the thing is everything else, Scoop Jackson, you know, and the relationship with the senator from Washington was good. Right, well, and the relationship with the, with the congressman from Colorado was good. Now, did, did uh, I was going to ask you in a second about your trip back there to, to meet with uh, Aspinall, but did, did uh, Egan ever indicate to you what he thought of Aspinall? Did he think that he was sort of irascible, or did he like him personally? Oh, he, he, yes, he was, um, well, I never heard Egan say he didn't like anybody. I never heard Bill Egan badmouth anybody. I mean, I've heard people in his presence start to dump on somebody, and that could be somebody from the other party, and Egan cut him off in a hurry. I do not recall Bill Egan ever saying a, a bad thing about someone. Uh, as far as Aspinall is concerned, he didn't go into any detail with me. I didn't know whether he was young, old, or what have you. He just told me to get on the plane and go back. And well, I was going to ask you, <coughs> what, when do you think that, that would have been? Do you recall? Was, it, was the legislature still in session at that point? or was it, Well, it you was? had the clipping, so right. it could have been. It was just as you look back through your history, and um, at the, the period, what prompted it was... Um, the guy from uh, that ran for governor, right? Don Wright? Yeah. Don was getting a little rambunctious back there, if you saw that. Mm -hmm. And there was some talk about there might be bloodshed or arms. Do you remember right, that particular right, thing? Right. And Egan didn't dump on anybody. He didn't call the native land people in because, hey, they were feeling their hopes. They were battling. I mean, hey, they were rising in prominence.
Uh, so Egan wasn't that tight. He just told me to go back and uh, I tell um, Congressman Aspinall, he says, you tell him that Bill Egan's word is good. And evidently there had been some conversations going on about this. And uh, there was, Aspinall read some of the goings on as overreaction and uh, felt that it did not serve the interest of Alaska well at that particular time to take militant approaches to it. And uh, that he was working to put it all together and uh, that between he and uh, uh, Jackson it was in good shape. And, uh, but I remember I, I told him that and I didn't, as I said, I didn't know if it was an older man or what have you. In subsequent time I got to know him. He's a wonderful man, a real guy, a solid rock a person like Bill Egan. But I just sat down and I looked at him like I'm looking at you and I said, um, Congressman Aspinall, I got a message from Governor Egan. And he said, just tell you that Bill Egan's word is good. Well, all right. Okay, okay. All right. Well, you tell Bill, no problem. <laughs> what then, then he kind of got up. He says, I wish some of these people that are coming here that, to represent the state would know that uh, the your governor's got it under control. What do you say? Well, that's uh, the right message. Uh, he felt deeply that the Native community should lead it. I'm sorry, he, Egan? Or he, he, Egan, felt that the visible leadership in the key moments of the Native Land Claims Settlement Act should be being played by the Native community. To show that it had an opportunity, it had a future, that it had a significant place and part in Alaska. Bill Egan did not attempt to sit there and manipulate everybody on the thing. We were along about the business of the the state as usual, or the building of the pipeline, uh, the other types of things. The main emphasis out of his office was, say, through John Havelock. John Havelock played quite a role in the dialogue that went back and forth. And I don't know if you've interviewed John. Uh, John's on the list. I've been yeah, right. waiting for the. Uh, he probably more on a day-to-day -day basis with, with the. Um, and um, well, now, back to this business about about communicating to uh, Mr. Aspinall about the governor's word being good. I was trying to. The reason I asked about when that was is that it, it the, the dam really broke about midsummer of '71, when Aspinall basically put a deal together, and. Um, and everybody I, had, was during that legislative right. session he, he of made, that year. He made everybody, including Don Wright, basically come in and say, if I let this bill go with the way it is right now, will you agree that you won't fool around with it? 
and that would have been in very late July or early August. Or well, bear in mind, now, your legislative session was going on in Juneau right up till about May, and I forget when it went out that year, but the chances are it was more than 120 days, and Egan would not leave the state, especially in the latter part of the legislature. That's why he sent me. Otherwise, he would have gone himself. Hmm. So it would have been uh, yes. well, well, the end of the, the state legislature. It was down to the uh, Fisher cut bait time. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Okay, we're good enough. What about, uh, uh, well, let me ask you, did, did you, was that basically your only trip back to, to deal with Aspinall on this, or were you involved subsequently in any other... Uh, later on in other areas, uh, um, a nuclear, and I was a member of the um, Western Nuclear State Compact, and uh, we had a lot to do with um, um, Colorado at that particular time. So there was a number of opportunities that I got to meet uh, Congressman Aspinall, uh, in fact, that time that I was there, he was really gracious. He he said, where are you staying? And he and his wife picked me up at the hotel that evening and took me out to dinner, and, hmm. and we had a relaxed evening. This was on the land claims this trip? This was or? on the land claim trip, yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. huh. He took me out that evening and, and reassured me, you go back and tell the governor that everything's okay. So the courtesy paid to me I'm sure not everybody comes to town because Wayne Aspinall um, and his they were and his wife very private people. Right, they didn't uh, socialize. That the is circuit. correct. They were from um, the western slope right. of Colorado. Right. Well, now, how about uh, well? So, so then, in terms of your the land claims issue, as opposed to many other projects, that was basically your. Yes, your, it was the only trip that was yeah. needed. Okay. I mean, after that, it was settled. Right. Right. Well, now, what about uh, another fellow that I missed, unfortunately, because I got up here just after uh, he was lost, was Nick Begich. Did, did you ever have occasion to talk to Begich about land claims? Yes. Uh, he was amazing. Uh, he worked very close with the governor, and the governor had the highest respect for Begich. Baggage uh, did an amazing job on the House side. I mean, the individual lobbying with the key, key congressmen. I mean, he um, he played a major role in in getting the votes on the House side. Absolutely, yes. Did you ever have occasion to talk to him about his general sort of philosophy about it all? You he felt much as Bill Egan and I did. Hey, these are fellow Alaskans. If we can add uh, 44 million, million acres to the state of Alaska, hey, we're for it. And granted, when it began to get to where we exchanged land and what have you, there were some uh, differences of opinion, but hey, that that is uh, true in any instance. Uh, I mean, where land is uh, a part of it. I'm talking about state land and native land claims, but by and large, it's it's worked out well. Well, 
But uh, the baggage, yes, definitely and absolutely played a significant role in it. Oh, don't worry about it. Did, um, uh, there was, I'm still trying to figure out, ah, great. Sorry, oh, no, that's perfect. totally forgot you. Everybody's forgetting you tonight. Does that make you really yeah. feel like I'm on yes. person? Red, forget well, you. I forget you. West, West, <laughs> rude can West, you. West Space Cadets around here today. I knew that. I mean, I assume anybody who has a meeting with you understands you. Right, we've kept the tape on, and so this will be for all posterity. <laughs> People will know what a basically, See, you are, you even, though, even though you were late for this meeting, that what a basically highly regular Joe history nice. <laughs> He's retired and he can do whatever he wants at his age. What do you mean retired? Uh, I'm <laughs> just, I'm in a whole mode, like, you know. In a what? I'm a whole mode. <laughs> in fact, today, about like five people asked right. me if I was going to run for mayor. And I hope five people got no. Actually, I, that's another subject, but I... You never say never. Compared to the present lineup, which certainly has not so far as started two. me at Twitter, um, um, whoever's mayor has got to have a universal look at Alaska. He's got to, uh, Tony Knowles understood that the importance of rural Alaska. Uh, I don't think Anchorage really ever has, to my way of thinking, and there's been none of the people that I've seen there. I mean, um, they're not natives appointed to key positions in this state. I mean, in this city. Well, you know, let me let me actually. But that, anyhow, that's that leads back into a question I was going to ask you about about that, and that is, um, it is interesting that I've seen memos that Ted Stevens wrote as early as as 1959 and 60, when he was still you know nobody working in the Interior Department, where he basically says exactly what you just said. You know, that giving natives land is not giving natives lands, it's giving Alaskans land, and, and, and it's a way to get an extra however many acres of land added onto the statehood. How now, people could not well, perceive that's absolutely well, beyond me. Even one day, a couple years ago, much to my amazement, Joe Vogler told me the same thing. You know, he says, God damn it, you know, you know, Joe, you know, I told those people, I said, give them a goddamn hundred million acres. Hundred million acres. Get it out of, you know, the enemy's the goddamn federal government. Get it out of their hands, you know. And I couldn't make anybody in, in you know, that I hung out with there in Fairbanks. That Listen, is and I, so I guess my question is, assuming that people as, as politically diverse as Ted and Joe Vogler and yourself, who obviously don't see eye to eye on a whole variety of things, all on your own, you know, it's not rocket science we figured that out. Why do you think that there was so much bitterness in the sort of the Anchorage, Fairbanks, Chambers of Commerce about all this, and all the people that really didn't get it at the time. I, first of all, I don't think that it was adequately explained at that time. Um, a lot of people today still don't understand what the Native land claims were all about. Uh, they'll say, well, it went when subsistence comes up. They say, well, we thought all... ...with the Native Land Claim Settlement Act. You hear that? I heard it. I got sick and tired of hearing it by the Hunters Association and uh, uh, the... the 
I don't like to knock people, but the mentality that creates a them and us situation. Um, the I think that was part of the problem. And all was saying, well, we didn't get this. We had to come up and work our homestead and, and so forth. So there was a lot of redneckism, if you will. Uh, uh, the... Um, looking down on the native community. Basic uh, racism. Yes, absolute racism. I mean, not basic, absolute. I mean, I heard some people make statements that just made me sick. I mean, Back I, in the land claims. Here. Yes, yes. How about the Anchorage Times and the Newsminer? Do you think that they were factors in, in sort of that kind of... Well, uh, basically both of those newspapers were pretty well influenced by Stevens. So that was a factor. Um, I don't, I've known Bob Atwood for a long time and and you're asking me the question, I also Bill Snedden. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall them uh, being uh, anti-native land claims. Um, uh, I know that um, Snedden was very fond of Stevens and Secretary of Interior Seton. Uh, they were certainly opposed to Udall's freeze. And that's one of the things that I think hurt it. Uh, obviously, the only way that the thing was going to get settled was to, to go through this process. At least Udall thought so then. Um, so it, it was it, its association with the land freeze, that Interior was doing that uh, for the Native community, I think, hurt it. But by and large, I think that if it was today, it could be handled a lot better. Explain to the average Alaskan. I mean, I can envision a spot saying, hey, 44 million acres for Alaskans. It will bring dollars into our economy, etc. And um, and that just wasn't done at the time. No, it wasn't done. It was kind of a Washington thing, if you will. People were thinking more of getting pipelines started and extracting resources and building roads and getting some of the basic things done. Now, actually, in that regard, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, press clips, <clears throat> when I don't know how much of it was political rhetoric, but of, of Egan saying that basically the state's going to go broke if we don't get the pipeline built because we're in deep trouble and we got to do this land claims thing in order to get the pipeline built. And so it's just two steps. Did they did, did absolutely believe that? He, he, he not only believed it, it was a fact. I mean, uh, yes, 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 yes. They were hand in glove. I have said on the floor of the House as recently as my last term there that nothing of any magnitude can be accomplished in this state without rural and urban Alaska working together. Over the years, rural Alaska, native Alaska, if you will, has developed many friends in Washington, D.C. And 
probably as much or more so as the state itself has. And um, so unless, Anwar is a prime example. Anwar is a prime example. Uh, I mean, you, nobody has really asked uh, the Native community to sit down. It was primary an industry and state pushed and promoted thing. We all joined hands together to get that pipeline, or there would have been no pipeline. Right. Well, I mean, what was, I guess, the thing that made me think of it was, uh, you know, how bad off financially, both to the state government and to the to sort of the private business community, <coughs> uh, you know, how, how much had the freeze, the land freeze, really uh, uh, disoriented things by by 70, I mean, Was the state really in financial trouble, or was that more of a Well, that certainly wasn't that the land claims had disoriented it. Um, our biggest problem was moving ahead and developing our resources in an environmentally sound manner. Bear in mind, under Bill Egan, the Department of Environmental Affairs came in. So it was no single thing. If you'll recall, that which was slowing the pipeline down, uh, and I still believe today that uh, take, take the native land claims and set it aside, take the environmental movement and set it aside, that what really slowed the pipeline was that Standard Oil of New Jersey did not have a piece of the action. Some upstart called ARCO and another called BP. And the underground, they created an, a, a lot of red herrings out there. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. In fact, I as much when I attended a conference when we were trying to get the pipeline uh, going, and bear in mind I traveled, that's was what I considered my finest hour. I mean, I traveled throughout the country uh, with editorial boards, became great friends with William Randolph Hearst, and uh, as I said, I've got that stuff there, and uh, every place I went in the country, uh, when the Native Land Claims Settlement or the talk came up, uh, people said, when are you going to get that thing settled? When are you going to get that thing settled? So uh, I never heard anything uh, negative at all, but uh, yes, it definitely played a role because of the natives lobbying back with the liberal Democrats that, hey, this thing is going to affect our life, our quality of life. They says, well, okay, if you're for it, we will uh, be there. But how close was the vote? What, on native land claims or on the pipeline? On the pipeline. Well, the pipeline, they had to break the tie. Uh, that's right. Actually, uh, so it was an all-out lobbying effort. As, as far as the state going broke, uh, I've never heard Bill Egan use those words. Um, uh, maybe he did. Uh, there was a feeling that we could not sustain growth in the state to the degree that it was needed without that pipeline moving ahead. Egan was concerned about medical facilities uh, in the smaller communities of the state, things that we had been denied and done without. That's a lot of people said, well, we got $900 million 
and it was spent right away. You, you bet it was. It was spent uh, for the needs of the state at that particular time. We sorely needed medical facilities, uh, schools, other types of stuff. So that would be his reference rather than saying that the state was going broke. Yeah, right, right. Well, now, the, the last sort of public involvement in terms of going through the press clippings of, of your involvement with this before there was a land claims bill uh, is that after uh, the bill had finally passed both the House and the Senate and was on its, this would have been like in November of 71, and it was on its way to, to go to the conference committee. Uh, I know that uh, according to the press clippings, that at, at that time, that's when Don Wright and AFN were really sort of mad at Egan over, over, you know, f first we went for all these years about how many acres, and then all of a sudden, once that got settled, it immediately switched into which acres, and then that became the big important thing. And I know that you and Egan went up to, to I guess, an AFN, big AFN board meeting up in Anchorage, and, and I guess the first question is whether you remember all of that, and apparently Egan calmed them all down. Yeah, he did, but, uh, simply because there was a lot of politics in that. Uh, Don's a fine man, but he had vision, high vision. As Don far Wright. As, I mean, Don Wright, yeah. Now, now did you know Don in the old yeah, days in Fairbanks? And yeah, yeah. What, right. what was your impression of him? He's a goer. Um, he, he jumped in. Um, I think that the people that had a lot to do with it were understate people like um, Imamati, Roy Hundorf, uh, Brian Malat. Uh, Don Wright was a different person from then. Uh, he was, how do you say it, uh, more of a promoter, should I put it, and I think that Part of that was attempt, since everybody wanted to get it settled, was to maybe rally some people to his side. Uh, much the same as applied um, in the um, in the, in the heated moments with Aspinall was the same technique that uh, Bill Egan uh, applied to him up there. The natives knew Bill. He had visited in their homes. He was loved in rural Alaska. So when Egan got up there and he called a few of the old timers and some of the elders and says, hey, come on, let's calm this thing down. You know I'm working for you or what have you. We don't have to declare war on Washington. That's actually what Wright said was he was going to declare war on. If the state didn't agree to what the AFN position was, that and then and this all lasted about two days, and then there was this big board meeting, and, and you and Egan went in there and got a standing ovation, and that was, I mean, there's still a lot of tussle that went on behind the scenes, but the whole... Well, there was, there was some very emotional people in there. I mean, they saw it. They was in their grasp, and uh, they were afraid of some of the rhetoric that was coming out of there. I think I got a book here uh, from Charlie Edwardson. Yeah, let's see, what did he say to me? Talk. Oh, is Charlie's book about uh, Hugh Gallagher's book about Charles? Yeah, a story of Eskimo yeah. power. Yeah. E talk. Yeah. Red, this is what I said. 
what makes good government? E-talk. <laughs> yeah, right. Charles Edwardson Jr. is a young Eskimo radical with a strange authority. So this is, uh, it's all tied into it. Uh, here you are, AFN meeting, Barry Jackson, Sackett, uh, unidentified uh, fourth person. This unidentified fourth person's John Broadbury. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Sorry. the traditional uh, native, the thing that I love about them. Uh, understated, steady, been here thousands of years. Uh, we're not going to solve all of these problems. And uh, I think that, you know, <laughs> um, Don just was, but Egan went in like the father figure that he was. He calmed him down. I watched. I watched. It was masterful. Now, do you know what Egan personally thought of Don Wright? Or he respected him. You know, uh, Egan respected anybody that had a, a spoke out. I mean, he didn't agree with me. I never heard him say, well, that so-and-so. Never. Egan knew how to pick his battles. Okay, well, um, I he guess... Just, it, it's the same... you, you got to see him work a room. you got to see him go into the National Guard Armory on Governor's Day and go down to Native, uh, Republican, Democrat. Hey, Mary, how are you? Hey, Don, good to see you. How are you, Jane? And hey, did that kid's leg ever get fixed? It was broken. Amazing. Did anyone ever ask him how he could remember all of that? I mean, his ability to do that was obviously legendary. I mean, no one's... Well, and then the story built. Neighbors tells one time that he was in the room and shook her hand. <laughs> and she says, I'm Neighbor, I'm Neva, <laughs> your wife, Bill. Uh, <laughs> why? Because that's where his mind was all the time. You talked to Bill Egan, he listened to you. He didn't have... Uh, a million things going it's on. It's not like Stevens, where you got 60 seconds and then. That's it, that's it. You can see him sure. thinking about everything else. Oh, yeah, world. right. And that's a mentality that we live in today. I go back to the 60 second mentality. Well, uh, very much appreciate all of this. I guess I have uh, two quick questions. One I hope is. It makes a contribution. Well, no, I, the, particularly this, this, you know, the t I wanted to. It's a real shame that I start. I started this project, but I've done it sort of in order, and so now I'm, I'm to the end. And by when I started, Bill was still around, and, and if, of course, if I'd known he was going to pass on, I would have, I would have accelerated sitting mm -hmm. down and having this kind of talk with him. Yeah, and of course, by the time I got to, you know, I never sort of do this until I've sort of done my homework. Yeah. You know, in terms of. What everybody's have doing. a lot work to have a lot probably you're going to find a lot out from John a lot of the technical stuff. Okay. Well, I guess my one of my two questions is is uh, do you think in terms of, of Egan's and yourself uh, your participate your collective participation in all of this do you think that we've sort of hit the major points or do you think there's anything that uh, that we haven't talked about that you think might be important to people listening to this in the future about Egan and Lance? Yeah. 
Whether they're the problems of 2010 or the problems of 1971 and settling a Native Land Claims Act, um, uh, Egan thought like, like Tip O'Neill, all politics is local, meaning that the greatest problems that are solved in this world are solved by a few people getting together. And if the focus is on the solution and not on the gamesmanship of egos, uh, that, that they will, the problem will get solved. Uh, uh, Theodore White, in, in, in talking about the history of man, talks about, tell me how they used power. And, uh, so the things that Bill Egan did then weren't the good old days. They were um, a time when you had a little bit more time to think about things. Um, when the majority of people were not controlled by what is coming out of the television, um, uh, you know, tell the whole world about um, the problems in Somalia uh, in 30 seconds. So they choose dragging a, a, a pilot through the street in the helicopter. Um, well, that's the correct message to send if you've only got 20 seconds to communicate your message. Right. Yep. So. Well, um, I guess my last question, which is sort of way beyond what I'm trying to put together, mm. but I've asked sort of everyone who was there at the time and has been here since, and that is, uh, just in a general way, uh, how do you think it's turned out in the last 20 years? And, I and think if, great. And do you think if, if you could, if you were the Congress and you could do it over again, do you think there's something that, that should have been done radically different, or do you think it came, it's worked out pretty much the way people expected at the time, or do you have a feeling for that sort of thing? Uh, I wouldn't change it. Um, there's been some talk, uh, primary brought up, by, about by the subsistence issue. Um, I think the safeguards that were built into the act that related to that belong there. Uh, no, I don't think there's anything that I would have changed about it. It has brought Alaska um, um, lots of jobs um, and created opportunities that otherwise would not have existed. How the different corporations have functioned um, there have been corporations that have done a great job, native corporations, and the other ones that have done not so great. But that's no different than in the um, in government, for example, or other corporations. Uh, I think that um, um, Alaska is unique in having done something like this. And it is my hope that uh, if anything, that there is more and a growing involvement between um, the Native community. 
I'd like to see some of these supermarkets that are moving in being native-owned, for example. Now, did you ever uh, have occasion after the Claims Act, you know, in the, in the 80s and beyond, to talk to Egan in terms of how he thought it had turned out? No, uh, no, uh, he was very pleased. Um, but he was an on with tomorrow guy. You know, hey, we got uh, problems. Uh, we got this uh, pipeline being built. We got these people pouring into the state. And uh, uh, once he got a problem solved, he didn't sit around and crow about it or or what have you. Is it? He was a true champion in every sense of the word. And uh, you know what a true champion is? They know they're a winner before they go into something. They don't believe otherwise. And that's what Egan was. It's like the old John Wooden UCLA basketball teams, you know? Hey. 30 seconds left and you're down by six, but you knew they were going to win because they always won. Well, winning becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. Thinking. Thinking about doing things becomes a habit. Egan had that thing, and it created that atmosphere uh, with everybody around him. So he just got on with uh, uh, doing uh, more. Okay, and then I think the last question that I just thought up listening to that is uh, obviously one of the things that did come out of land claims was the whole 17D2 and Elko deal. Did, did, did Egan or you or anyone appreciate at the time when, when 17D2 was put into the Claims Act what that really was going to mean? Or do you, was it just sort of the detail that... Well, first of all, that was one of those things that were in there that if you'd have started a, a battle over that, you might have lost the Correct. war. Correct? Right. That's true. So there are lots of things uh, that we we had to deal with later. We're still dealing with the Statehood Act, right? Huh? And things could have been different. Um, I guess my question was whether or not you saw that the it problem it, it turned out to be, or whether or not it was just sort of the detail that no one saw the consequences no, of No, 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 I think that uh, you saw that, and uh, you're always going to have that concern with the federal presence, and um, uh, in fact, I was the D2 lands handling. Right, I was just yeah. reminding me, I remember you were traveling around the country. Oh, yeah, right, right, saying, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> You know, Alaskans are not irresponsible people. Bear in mind now, if you will come back to some of the early thinking in that you were talking about the pipeline and some of the more liberal Democrats because of the native involvement and the desire to get that issue solved went over on the side of industry and economic development. Later years, that pipeline factor wasn't in there. So there were some of the people that were with us on one issue that weren't with us on the other. Okay, well, I very did much... Did that answer that, that satisfactorily? Sure did, sure did, sure did. Well, as I said, I very much appreciate you taking uh, time this evening. And uh, I know this was very helpful to me, and I hope someday when someone else is listening to this tape, they'll find it equally both... Uh, Educational and fun. I've enjoyed myself thoroughly. Well, thank you. And uh, I guess with that, we can probably uh, 